Hi, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking from top academics at the University of Cambridge and beyond. In this episode, we talk to Vasilis Kotsidis. Vasilis is a fellow and teaching associate in economics here in Cambridge. His research focuses on instances of strategic interaction and their formal models. In the first part of this episode, we discuss how economists represent preferences in a framework called rational choice theory. That leads on to the so-called repugnant conclusion, a problem in population ethics originally posed by the late philosopher Derek Parfit. Vasilis' approach to the problem is kind of novel insofar as he brings to bear tools and methods from economics to what is traditionally just a philosophical problem. The repugnant conclusion is so interesting because you start with some really innocuous sounding premises and end up with a conclusion that most people just find horrible. Um, You feel like you've been tricked somewhere, but it's really difficult to say where. It's worth taking problems like this seriously though, because we face similar questions when we start thinking about the very long-term future. So here's Vasilis Kotsidis. I'm Vasilis, Vasilis Kotsidis. I'm a fellow here at St. Catharines, St. Catharines College. I teach various topics, mainly mathematics and micro in, in the School of Economics. My research focuses on mainly game theoretic topics and I guess, uh, well, also trying to branch out towards the philosophy of economics. What drew you to economics um, initially and why this particular branch of economics, which is game theory and like you mentioned, the philosophy of economics as well. The why component is always difficult for me to address because ultimately it's because it's really appealing to me. And honestly, there's hardly any other reason that is important about it. Of course, I believe that the, uh, that the topics I, uh, I investigate are uh, resourceful and uh, you know, socially relevant, but ultimately I do that because I like them and I like working with such questions. Now, I have a particular bias. I have, a, you know, a, a, a sort of perspective, as it were, because I like to structure things in the, or I've grown to like things to structure to, to structure things in a logical manner, and as a result, I look at uh, very formal and as a result, very simple conceptions of how to understand both, in this case, human motivation and social social reality to some extent so the appeal of game theory to me is, well game theory in its i guess you, you could call it its purest form is basically applied topology um so you can look at it as a branch of mathematics and if you do that you might realize that it's resourceful in the sense that it's relevant for answer questions in the um, domain of social sciences but I, I ultimately think that it's the beauty of it, rather than um, um, rather than its usefulness that you know will draw you into its study. So we are going to be talking about the so-called repugnant conclusion, um, but we need to begin by laying out some of of this formal way of talking. Um, so could you tell us about? what that involves and how we begin to model preferences on us. And it's spectacular that we are we are talking about the European conclusion in this context because, I mean, essentially my own approach to it involves 
uh, this sort of uh, this sort of reasoning. And you could argue that this is not the only way in which you could arrive at the repugnant conclusion. This is one of the potential ways. However, to you know use rational choice theory to arrive in this way, you would have to think of preferences as uh, satisfying a certain set, set of restrictions which would make them amenable to being described by a formal model. Essentially, when we talk about individual preferences, we would have to realize that we are talking essentially about individual comparisons, which are pairwise rankings. That means that they face a series of options. If I'm the decision maker, I face a series of options. Uh, let's start from the viewpoint where these options are, where this set is complete, all the options are well defined, I know exactly what lies in front of me. And for every two of those options, I can rank them. So a preference ordering is just a rank of every two options, where I say that one is preferable to the other. Now there's a lot of baggage associated with that. For one, it needs to be the case if my if my restrictions as an economist were to apply, it needs to be the case that I need to provide a ranking for any two of these options, for any pair of the possible pairs that I can form. So that is already potentially problematic because when I'm talking about height, for any set of individuals, I can determine that one is taller than another. Right. And then it would also make sense to, uh, to essentially reverse the statement and say that the other is shorter than one. However, there are of course comparisons that are much more complex. Um, borrow an example from Temkin, perhaps here. I might, Pafit used it as well. When comparing Plato and Aristotle, I might not be inclined to say that one is a better philosopher than, another, than the other. Right. right. But then the reversal of the statement might apply. I might be inclined to say that none is worse than the other. So in that sense, this sort of um, is something that we'll probably need to address later on. In that sense, I'm allowed to make I'm allowed. I'm restricting myself to making some statements, but not others when it comes to pairwise comparisons, which are essentially logically equivalent, or would be logically equivalent, if my um, requirement of completeness applied. The other requirement that would need to apply if I were to have a you know proper framework of formal choice, which is logically tractable, is of course transitivity. So let's, for the moment, assume that I face a set of options as a decision maker and I can provide a ranking for every two of those options. The ranking meaning for any two X and Y in my choice set, X is preferred to Y or Y is preferred to X or both of these things. Well then, I would also need to be making 
consistent rankings. And consistency in this setting will require that if I judge X to be preferable than Y, and if I judge Y to be preferable than Z, then I would kind of need to also judge X as being preferable to Z. Now, this sort of consistency of choice prevents me from constructing preference cycles. Again, if I use the example of a tall individual versus a less tall individual, um, then I would say that person X is taller than person Y and person Y is taller than person Z. Well, that means right, these two antecedents alone imply that person X is taller than person Z. And yet, that's not necessarily something I would be able to generalize for any sort of pairwise relationship. Sure. So we have here a way of talking about ordering preferences over choices, right? And it sounds like rational choice theory wants to say, what are the kind of minimal requirements that I need in order to say that I'm ordering those preferences in a way that we can call rational, right? So... On this table in front of me, I can see some apples, some pears, and some chocolates. If I wanted to eat something right now, yeah, being honest, I'd prefer the chocolate to, to the apples. And I'd probably prefer an apple to a pear. So this requirement of transitivity is saying that I should also prefer the chocolate to a pear, right? Yes. And... Uh... Further than that, you might want to make further distinctions. Do you strictly prefer a chocolate to an apple? Right. Strictly as in, do we preclude indifference? Should we just touch on this then? So what's the difference between strict preference and um, weak preference? Brilliant. So essentially, when I define preferences as the sort of relationships that imply uh, some sort of ordering, in this case... Uh, for a weak preference, a partial ordering, I'm saying, look, for every option, for every single thing that I can choose, the preference will identify a set of things that are worse. Okay? The difference, this is essentially the definition of better than. So if I say that X is better than Y, well, Y is one of you know, a number of things that, can, that, I prefer, that, that, that I prefer X from. If I wanted to identify a weak preference relation, I would effectively have to account for the possibility that someone is indifferent between two options. So then I would say, if X is judged as weakly preferred to Y, that translates to X being at least as good as Y. That's the most immediate, uh, I think, the most immediate uh, interpretation. Under completeness and transitivity of this relationship, it would also uh, it would also imply that y is at most as good as x. But if completeness fails, these two statements are not necessarily equivalent. Right. So in this example of choosing what to eat. What would completeness say about how I should um, arrange my preferences about that? Brilliant. So here we have three items, chocolate, pear, and apple. Completeness will look at the set of three items. Well, would, would imply that you looking at the set of three items, 
being able to form pairwise comparisons, you would be able to do that for any pair of these items. In this case, well, three pairs. You are able to compare chocolates and apples. You are able to compare apples and pears, and you are able to compare pears and chocolates. So I'm allowed to be indifferent between, for instance, pears and apples. But when I'm indifferent, I'm still expressing some preference, right? Or I'm expressing some comparison. Completeness is saying that for any pair in the kind of collection of things that I can make a choice about, I need to have some kind of preference, right? Is Brilliant. that the idea? Brilliant. That's a very good point. Completeness requires that indeed we are able to make a judgment. So to say that I'm indifferent between apples and pears is from this viewpoint very different to saying I don't have a preference between these two things. Completeness requires that I do have a preference even if that preference is indifference. I'm actively judging them exactly as good as one another. So I'm kind of having listened to you explaining completeness and transitivity. I think both of these things seem very intuitive at the moment. And I think it would be also interesting to discuss examples where these might not be able to hold to get a better kind of grasp of the concepts as well. And that's also another another good point. If we if we start providing the building blocks of a normative theory, it seemed that it seems that at the moment going back to a very weapons framework, it seems that these things are very, you know, natural. I would expect someone who chooses in a logically consistent manner to satisfy these requirements. At least the requirement. Um, now, let's try to think about choices that are a bit more involved. Consider the following um, choice set. Descartes, uh, Locke, Kant, and Socrates. It might be very hard for me to argue that Descartes is uh, not as good a philosopher as uh, as Locke. Right? I might not be able to make the judgment on the grounds that you know what what does being a better philosopher than mean? What does being a worse philosopher than mean? And it might be also very hard for me to say that. Locke is not a, as good a philosopher as Kant. And it might still not be easy for me to say that Kant is not as good a philosopher as Plato, but I might be inclined to think that Descartes is, you know, not as good a philosopher as Plato. Right? So I would rank Plato higher than Descartes. Might be a Greek bias, but still, I might be inclined to. Whereas I wouldn't really consider them better than someone else whom I cannot consider better than than Descartes. So in this case, I would essentially either have to accept that uh, a particular, my particular ordering is intransitive and perhaps my particular ordering is incomplete or the natural translation across different orderings is not really immediate. For example, when I say that X is better than Y, I've, I think that this is logically equivalent to saying that Y is worse than X. Well, as a matter of fact, I might not be able to make that argument. I might think, you know, that, uh, for example, Aristotle is not worse a philosopher than Plato. Plato is not worse a philosopher than Aristotle. 
but neither of them is better than the other, even weakly better. I might not think of them as, you know, equally good, but even though I might think of them as equally not bad. Right. right. I, do you know there's been Sartre when he talks about one of his students who comes up to him and says, um, I'm really not sure what to do. This is during the war in the resistance. Should I go join the resistance and fight the fascists? Um, or should I stay at home um, and look after my my mum? She's dying. She needs my, my care, right? And I'm really oh, conflicted, right? Now, it looks like here, um, this guy is not indifferent between these two choices. One way to draw that out is if you were really indifferent, you could just pay him like 50p um, to do one of them and then he would do it because that would just tip him over the edge of the kind of the knife edge of indifference. And we all face these choices all the time, right? When we're kind of uncertain. We're not indifferent between them. We just don't really have any way of preferring one over the other because they're so different. So maybe that's another kind of counter example to saying that um, we should always rank our preferences um, in this kind of complete way. I think that's absolutely valid. I think that the, you know, you could you could even go a bit further than that. It's either the case that the person in, in, in this question, in this sort of moral dilemma, is not indifferent. But even if I were indifferent, right, and you offered me 50p to join one of the two fronts, it's unclear why that 50p would, you know, would be my tipping point, would resolve the indifference on the grounds that maybe what I'm thinking about is something of an entirely different nature. Maybe the moral dilemma is an entirely different dimension. So there is a, one problem of saying, I cannot articulate my preference, even though I, um, so if I cannot articulate my preference, it's unclear whether I know that I have one, whether I actually have one, and whether I can translate it in, a, you know, in, in an intelligible format. So it's both a, an argument that pertains to the epistemology and the ontology of, you know, ontology of preference holderings. Tony Lawson will kill me about that. But um, there is another argument that says even if, you know, I am indifferent in that situation, so I do have a preference. And the preference is, you know, well-defined. My preference still does not depend on your tiebreaker. My preference is not a function of how much money each option carries. In which case, giving me 50p won't really resolve the moral dilemma for me. So, lexicographic preference orderings, right? Why would they be relevant? Well, let's take a step back here. We talked about completeness and transitivity. Now, these two requirements would imply preference orderings that are rational. Right? And I, that's to some extent, uh, that's to some extent, well, entirely tautological actually, because I define rationality in this manner. In addition, if my preferences exhibit the property of continuity, then I would be able to describe them using a very powerful mathematical framework. And can you just define what continuity means as well? So in this case, um, this is a gross oversimplification, okay? But let's suppose that for some, for two prospects, right? For two options, uh, 
your preference sorting would give you the two options are X and Y, and your preference sorting would say, look, I prefer X to Y. Well, then you might ask, okay, what if I use a mixture of X's and Y's? Right? What if I use a linear combination of them? A linear combination of X's and Y's would involve some amount of X and some amount of Y. So pick a real number between zero and one. That number with the, will be the proportion of X in that combination. One minus that number with the proportion of Y. Well, continuity would go from your preference of X to Y to infer that you must also prefer X to any combination of the two that involves X with a lower, at a lower proportion. And you prefer that combination to Y. So you can essentially cut your options into finer, finer, finer uh, dichotomy. And for any two such cuts, you're still able to rank them. So I guess to take it back to our example of like apples and chocolates, if I say, for example, I prefer apples to chocolates, then I must also prefer apples to uh, a bundle of um, apples and chocolates? Or what exactly would it kind of imply for, for that example? Well, so essentially, yes. If, if for example, you look at these at apples and chocolates, mm -hmm. and you, you, know, you have the option of taking well, five apples or five pieces of chocolate, Right. You say, I prefer five pieces of chocolate to every other, you know, uh, combination that is currently available. Then I should also prefer five pieces of chocolate to four pieces of chocolate and one apple. Now, of course, you might be legitimately thinking, well, hang on. As a matter of fact, it's rational to prefer, well, it's entirely reasonable to prefer mixtures to extremes. But here, all I'm saying is that if you have a well-specified set of bundles, your linear combinations refer to those bundles in the first place, mm. which is why I said that you know it's it's a gross oversimplification in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Um, the important part here is that to lead our discussion to lexicographic preferences, to lexicographic preference orderings, is that if you have some sort of preference for one prospect over another, right? that preference can be defined over ever smaller differences between those two prospects, which is not the case for lexicographic orderings. Right? So for a lexicographic ordering, I would explicitly define something as being inherently, in principle, more important than something else, a dimension that carries an additional weight. For example, I might say, I prefer, in this case, tastier snacks, meaning more sugary snacks, to less tasty snacks, conditional on them being healthy as well. However, I always prefer, prefer healthier snacks to less healthy snacks. So in this case, looking at the apples and pears, I know that an apple contains less sugar than the chocolate, which would be if, if the you know, health indicators were equal, it would be a good reason for me to choose the chocolate. It would be the tiebreaker. However, they are not. So 
on the basis of health indicators, I make the choice of an apple, whatever the, sh- the sugar content, the relative sugar content is, mm. that would be a lexicograph preference ordering, which of course would mean that if apples and pears have the same sugar content, right? Sorry, if apples and pears are equally healthy, I mean, I may choose the one with a higher sugar content, but if apples are slightly more healthy than pears, then I don't care what the relative sugar content is, even if the difference is vast. I guess the like intuitive way to think of lexicographic preferences is like a dictionary in the sense that the very first thing that you look for is the first letter. So in our case, how healthy it is. And then only when that is satisfied, you then look at the second letter. So in this case, how much sugar they have. And that's how you kind of order them by. Precisely. Um, One last thing I think is important to clarify as well is that, as you mentioned, we define rationality based on kind of completeness and transitivity. And when both in this conversation and I think more generally economists kind of talk about rationality, that's really what they refer to. Rationality itself doesn't make any uh, implications about what your preferences themselves actually are. So it is equally rational to prefer chocolate to apples or apples to chocolate. Nothing in rationality itself prescribes what your preference is. It's only that your preferences can be described as complete and as transitive. So that is absolutely correct. What I'm trying to do um, as a rational choice theorist is not, at the moment at least, is not to provide a framework of moral choice, not to dictate that your choices uh, are morally good or morally bad. All I'm trying to do is provide a framework which could judge your choices on the basis of their logical consistency and say, okay, here's a person who chooses this and this and this and that, and these choices are logically consistent with each other. Absolutely, any choice within within this choice set, within the apples, pears, and oranges, uh, sorry, apples, pears, and chocolates example, would be admissible within that framework. Um, an initial you know, choice among the three. Now, <clears throat> I like that you touched that point because there are, there are at least two ways you can think about generating a framework of, framework of choice. You might say that, okay, what do I do? I start from a normative framework and say, okay, what are the requirements for choices you know, to be logically coherent. I specify those requirements, and then I go about into the world, and I look at whether actual choices manifested by actual people satisfy those requirements. Of course, you could always ask, let's look at people's choices, right? Let's see what I can infer from them. I mean, in actual fact, right? What I said so far is, suppose you have all the options laid out in front of you. Suppose for any two options, you can order them. That's already quite a lot. I mean, people don't generally have a full set of options in front of them. Even if they have, they don't necessarily consider it. I mean, right now I can go on on Google and type something and get thousands of pages of results. And I really won't look at them all. So at the end, I know that I have left some unexplored. By the way, you know, you can account for that in different ways. You can think about that in different ways. But the point is, what if I observe a choice actually made? Can I infer infer that that choice was 
rational in the sense that I tried to describe before. Well, I would have to argue that given the choice that this person had, this one must be in the set of most preferred alternatives. This, this is, must be one of the better things that, you know, that they could have done. And then I would essentially go about the other way around and say, what are the necessary conditions for this set of preferred alternatives? What would it need to satisfy if I were to say, yeah, this person is making logically consistent choices? In which case, I would say, consider two options X and Y again. In this case, apples and, uh, and pears. And let's suppose that this is all you see right now. So just apples and pears without any chocolates. Say they choose apples. I sort of infer now that you, at the very least, weakly prefer apples to pears, or that apples in, are in your set of most preferred alternatives. That means that whenever apples and pears are present, other things might be present, and you might choose the other things, right? But what would you not choose? I wouldn't expect you to strictly prefer the pear, to strictly prefer the pear. Which means if I bring up the chocolates again, and you have the three options in front of you. If you don't choose chocolates, now as your preferred alternative, and you switch to pears, then the only logically admissible inference there is that you are indifferent between apples and pears. You chose apples before, when pears were available. You choose pears now, where so apples are available. What can I infer? Well, if you're not indifferent, then these, these choices are not coherent. Mm. There's, of course, a caveat, which I presume, you know, you're already uh, keenly aware of. In this sense, I can rationalize any choices you actually made. Right? Yeah. Pick any set of alternatives, make any series of choices, and they can be rationalized on the grounds that you are indifferent. So we have this rational choice theory. You've explained the basic requirements, right? So we have a way of representing choices among options. And then we say that um, our preferences among those choices, in order to count as rational, in this very basic sense, need to fulfill certain requirements, right? And those requirements are um, at least completeness and transitivity, and maybe continuity as well. Um, and it sounds like we're not saying this is a way of describing how most people uh, behave, right? So maybe maybe most people aren't unrational, or certainly um, some people aren't rational some of the time, right? So it's a kind of sounds like a very like minimal starting point for any kind of um, normative or economic theory that wants to talk about what isn't isn't rational. Cool. So that's that's the basics, I guess. But um, we can use this now to start talking about this repugnant conclusion. So um, I guess what is the question we're asking when we start thinking about, about, about this kind of thing? What's the first, the first thought? Brilliant. So in approaching the repugnant conclusion, we harness a wonderful uh, um, framework proposed by Derek Parfit in his uh, work and Reasons and Persons in 1984, no? 
so the logic is reasonably straightforward. Suppose, as before, you are the decision maker, but now you have the option to choose among different types of populations. You can bring one of those populations to life. That means, you know, you can allow them to exist. And this choice is essentially exclusive. If you choose one population, you don't choose another. Now, of course, that means that you would sort of like to make a wise choice. And I will later argue that we need to make such choices, perhaps more, more often than, they, than this sort of thought experiment might, might induce us to think. But, for now, consider two populations. Let's call the first population, population A. Population A has a um, mass of about, a size of about 10 billion people. Okay, population in terms of size. And it has a very high quality of life. What does very high quality mean? That will become clear later when I compare it in relative terms. But let's say that the quality of life is uh, 100 quality units. 10 billion people, each living a life equal to, worth equal to 100 qu uh, uh, quality units. A lot of buggers, right? So by comparison, zero quality units would be in difference between existing and non not existing. Negative quality units would be a life not worth living. A life of suffering and pain. Okay, so this is our first population. 10 billion people, 100 quality units each. Consider now a second population. The second population is, call them A, A+, plus, which consists of the former 10 billion people with exactly the same quality of life, 100 quality units, plus another, say, 10 billion people with 50 quality units of life. Right? So what have I done? The second population, A+, plus, is just the first population plus some people with a positive quality of life. Now, with respect to moral reasoning, uh, it might be, and let's for the moment stay at that, it might be intuitive to think that we shouldn't deny any number of people the opportunity to live a worthwhile life life worth living if it doesn't have any bearing on the you know on the rest of the population so the only difference between a and a plus is the additional uh, number of people whose lives are worth living so it seems as if we should have good grounds to prefer a plus to a and later I'll try to explain why to say that a plus is at least as good as a is not necessarily the same thing as saying A plus is not worse than A. But on the completeness and transitivity, these two things are in fact equivalent. So let's say that A plus is as good as, at least as good as A, given our collective moral preference. So now consider yet another population, call that population B. Now, let's think about the comparison between A plus and B. A plus from before, consists of 20 million people, sorry, 20 billion people. 
10 billion of them have a quality of life equal to 100, 10 billion have a quality, li a quality of life equal to 50. Well, B comprises of 20 billion people with a quality of life equal to, uh, say, 80. All of them. Now, that basically means that B is a population with a more egalitarian distribution of welfare. The average quality of life in A plus is 75. The average quality of life in B is 80, because everybody has exactly that. Should we prefer population B to population A plus? Would we have this sort of preference if we were to bring them to life? For the sake of the argument, let's say that we do. Let's say that we judge B to be at least as good as A+. Or, well, if you want to uh, expound the argument more uh, dramatically, let's say that B is better than A+. A higher average quality of life, same number of people. And it's unclear in the first place why 10 billion people in population in plus, right, should be worse off on account that they did nothing wrong other than existing. But now that would mean that we prefer A plus to A and B to A plus. Now, if our population preferences are rational, we should also prefer B to A. But let's think about what, would what that would imply. A is a population of 10 billion people with a quality of life of 100 each. B is a population of 20 billion people with a quality of life of 80 each. So B contains more people and a lower quality of life for each. And the certain says compensates for the lower quality of life just by adding more people. Well, by parity of reasoning, if we run the same thought experiment again and again, then we prefer a larger population C to B with a lower quality of life, a larger population D to C with a lower quality of life, and eventually we prefer population Z whose people lead lives barely worth living, but whose size, the size of which, is so large that in terms of total, total utility, it's, it provides a, you know, a higher number. So it could be that they have uh, a quality of life of one each, but it so happens that they are more than 100 billion people. Sure. I guess a good way of, of picturing it um and this is how it's depicted often, right, is you can imagine rectangles, right, which represent these populations, where the width of the rectangle stands for the, the population, the number of people in the group, and the height of the rectangle is the quality of life above zero, right? So the higher the rectangle, the more uh, happy on average those people in that, in that group are going to be. So we're starting off in A with, with a, a narrow but very tall mm -hmm. rectangle, right? In A+, plus, or in the next step, we have the very same rectangle plus another rectangle that's slightly less tall, but the same, same width, right? But, but it's still... A, a larger total area. Right, exactly. And then in, the, in world B, or the, the next step after that, we're kind of just more or less putting those rectangles together. And we're getting, but we're getting a rectangle with a higher average uh, quality of life than A+, plus, or than the previous step, but the same population as A+. Plus. So, so even in, larger total area. Right, exactly. So we're thinking, I guess, you know, area might be a kind of quite a good rough proxy for, you know, 
um, how much we should prefer this world or how good the world is, right? Because happiness is obviously good and so is population, right? Um, exactly. And the, and the view here is uh, utilitarian and in particular, you know, we are talking about total utilitarianism. So that what we are looking at is maximizing the total amount of utility in that population. This is not innocuous, of course. Uh, I mean, Henry Sedgwick, I think at the beginning of the 20th century, proposed that this is what we should be looking at uh, in contradiction to what Malthusians regarded as the average utility back then, which should be the you know item focus. Turns out that both of them will have rather perhaps counterintuitive results, but for now, if we are focusing on total utility, as you say, we can assign a number to each population, which represents how much you know we value it relative to the others, which is of course equal to the area or an increasing function of the area of the rectangles that comprise it. So we're looking at the area of those rectangles, we can uh, find what the total value of the population is to us. And that's how we rank it relative to others. Well, it so happens that, you know, this will essentially imply um, the Archimedean property, right? It, the last population has a very small quality of life. So that's a very small number per person. However, it has so many people that it surpasses the area of population A. So, I mean, having said that, it might be worth saying that you don't need to be a utilitarian or even a consequentialist of any stripe necessarily in order to get to the repugnant conclusion, right? As long as you think that your preferences over these populations should be transitive and as long as you prefer each step to the previous one. And it sounds like we should, not not because we have these kind of this strong set of views about utilitarianism, but just because each step sounds more or less better than the, the last one, right? So it's a broader problem than than being a problem for just those people who think that the, the area of those rectangles is the only thing we should care about, right? Absolutely. Uh, I, I think that is entirely correct. And, you know, it's relatively easy to argue along those lines. Essentially, it's not necessary to, that someone is a total utilitarian for them to want to do, you know, something that's good for humanity, in a sense, at least insofar as this doesn't entail a, a big cost to them. And whenever you want to do, you know, what's good for humanity in that way, you need to engage in these sorts of comparisons. Now, these sorts of comparisons will necessitate the framework of choice. As you said, if our preferences are transitive, we might find ourselves tending towards the repugnant conclusion, or we might find ourselves trying to avoid it, tending to some other equally counterintuitive conclusions. I mean, my previous argument about lexicographic preferences, lexicographic preferences are transitive. They're just not continuous. However, consider what that means. Suppose that when I look at populations, I consider two things. One, the quality of life, which is what's important mostly to me in principle, and two, the size. So between two populations, I prefer the one with a higher quality of life. But if they have the same quality of life, I prefer the one 
with more people in it. Okay. Well, that would actually stop um, uh, the repugnant conclusion almost immediately. Because in comparing populations A and A+, well, the average quality of life in, uh, in A is higher than that in A+. So I prefer population A. But consider what I'm saying there. right? I would virtually prefer population consisting of a single person with a quality of life equal to 100 than any number of people each with quality of life equal to 99. Right. Any number. It gets even worse, right? So if you think that the only thing that matters is the average uh, happiness of your population, then you can get something like a sadistic conclusion where suppose you have one very unhappy person or a world with a billion just unhappy people, right? You'd prefer that world, which is just so obviously ridiculous that this can't quite run. I mean, I'm not sure if we can make um, if we can make moral judgments about something that's more objectionable than something else. Consider the, the, the standard form, the, the repugnant conclusion, right? You might argue that... What would be the argument here? If you want to make it more dramatic, consider population A plus one person, again, plus one person, call them uh, Prometheus, that lives a very, very bad life, okay? So that person might have a quality of life at uh, minus 200. And then you would argue that population Z, Z plus Prometheus, is actually preferable, because Prometheus is the same, the common factor between two populations, and I already concluded that I prefer a large population of close to zero quality right. to a small one. It's also not, I mean, among the many types of baggage that we have here, it's also not clear how we can reduce the quality of life. So profit would refer to a series of discrete steps. One, remove Mozart from the world. Two, remove Haydn. Three, Venice is destroyed. Four, five, six, and as you progress down the moral alphabet, you end up with uh, what he calls music and potatoes. Because mm -hmm. that's, is that a life barely worth living? Um, so one thing to consider as well, which some philosophers have kind of been pointing to, is that the repugnant conclusion might not be as repugnant as we think. Uh, do you want to elaborate about that at all? Well, of course, uh, we are essentially trying to so as we said before, right, mm. we are trying to, de to determine what uh, reasonable population ethics would look like. Yeah. So in the same sense that I before tried to define a rational preference ordering, right, I'm now trying to define a rational population preference ordering yeah. and say that, look, if I make this series of choices, these choices are logically coherent with one another. Mm. Now you would make a separate argument that the implications of those choices are repugnant. Mm. But as a matter of fact, that argument points, well, al alludes to your personal moral views, not to the uh, quality of these choices as being, as being logically consistent. Mm. So there are in these side philosophers that said, look, the repugnant conclusion being repugnant is just a moral judgment. And it's unclear on what grounds we are 
levying that moral judgment, mm. right? So they have proposed a series of reasons why this is, uh, you know, they, they're not the same, like they're not a homogeneous group of people, but they have proposed a few reasons why uh, this sort of moral judgment is one, of course, to some extent, largely subjective, and two, of, dif of a different quality than the, uh, than the judgment of the coherence of this choice. Now, the problem is that, of course, we are, I think, all happy to separate the issue of coherence from the issue of, uh, you know, uh, moral, uh, what's the word, appeal, mm. appeal to our intuitive sense of what is, what is good and what is not. However, it is not entirely clear that we are legitimized in, you know, running those comparisons in the first place. Mm. Are our choices among those populations complete and transitive? There are quite a few philosophers who argue that this is not the case. Temkin is a reasonably uh, prominent example of uh, a philosopher who says, look, consider those choices. And here is where our previous discussion comes into play. If my choice set isn't complete, if I'm not considering, for example, all the, uh, well, if I cannot rank all the populations against one another, then to say that some population is better than another, and to say that some population is not worse than another, it's they're just not the same thing. In the same sense that I can say that uh, I cannot opine on whether Plato is better than Aristotle or Aristotle is better than Plato, but I but I can say that none of them is worse than the other. So their completeness would fail simply because I cannot make, I cannot assert one preference uh, relation. But it seems they can assert what is a logically equivalent one. Right? Yeah. So if I say, for example, um, in a much simpler framework, if I say that five is larger than three, mm. as a number, five is larger than three, and harnessing a complete ordering that indeed specifies that you know, five is a larger number. It is, in that, in that sense, logically equivalent to say that three is less than five. Now notice the content of those statements. Five is larger than three. The relation there is larger than. Three is less than five. The relation there is less than. Are these two relations the same? I'm going to guess with no. Mm -hmm. they're, guess. they're not the same? Well... At the very least, we can say that their interpretations in plain English are different. Mm. But in all situations that, where they apply, whenever one happens to be true, the mm. other is also true. Mm. Whenever one isn't true, the other also is not true. So in a certain sense, we have uh, logical equivalence between mm. the two. Yeah. Now, this logical equivalence would mean that extensionally, they're exactly the same thing. They describe the exact same uh, set in every single yeah. application of them. An extensional logic, extensional meaning um, uh, logic that, uh, well, essentially judges predicates, mm. or if I feel more comfortable in expressing this in terms of uh, set theory, judges, judges predicates or functions 
with respect to the sets that they represent. Mm. So if two functions describe the same set, they are logically equivalent. You know, from the point of view of that extensional argument, yeah, these two things are the same. However, even from the point of view of that argument, it's unclear why the relation as least as good at least as good as and the relation not worse than mm. are logically equivalent. So how would that kind of how would we apply that to the repugnant conclusion then? What is kind of the the relevance of that for for what we were discussing before? Brilliant. So in the case of the repugnant conclusion, I'm considering initially two populations. Mm. Population A, 10 billion people, 100 quality of life each. Population A plus, 20 billion people, half of them 100 quality of life, half of them 50. Mm. Can I claim that one is um, at least as good as the other? Yeah. Okay. Well, can I claim that equally, equally, can I claim that one is at least not worse than the other? I think so. Okay. So let's start with the first. Which of the two populations is uh, at least as good as the other? So between A plus and A, I would mm. say A plus is at least as good as A because it's got the same people in A living those same happy lives plus some more happy people. Brilliant. So we have more people without impacting the ones currently in existence. Mm. Would you like to tell me what it is that you're comparing there? I mean, clearly, 10 billion of those people are exactly the same across the two populations. So the deal breaker must be the other 10. But what exactly about those 10 people? What exactly about uh, their coming into being in the second population leads you to say that the second population is, uh, is potentially better? One thought might be, if I make this choice to bring about the world A plus rather than A, that extra 10 billion people might be, for instance, you know, grateful that that choice was made, but there'd be no one in world A to um, uh, exactly. be grateful they made that choice. Yeah. And that's really, you know, what we should take as the counterfactual. If I make that choice, I will create, you know, 10 billion people with lives worth living. Mm -hmm. If I don't make that choice, what happens? And those people don't exist. So, can I claim that I have impacted their lives in, uh, in a meaningful way? Well, the answer to that is, of course, whether I, uh, I take a, a person-based perspective or not. Mm. I mean, in a certain sense, you could say it's moral to try to improve people's life. In which case, you know, it would be moral to try to uh, improve the standing of already existing people. Mm. Meaning... It will make sense for me to compare two populations with respect to the people within them that are actually existent. Right. So this is the so-called person-affecting view, right? So it's about the slogan is making people happy, not making happy people. Mm. And it, it sounds kind of intuitive, right? So when we're comparing these populations, I guess what we should care about is affecting those people who already exist, right? At least the people who don't exist right now what we might call merely possible people, they should at least count less or not at all than the people who are around to care about our choices right now. Um, is that kind of the view you're, you're going for? Uh, 
this is the view I'm trying to describe as a potential right, refutation right. of your previous, uh, uh, as a potential refutation of your previous comparison, at least with respect to a strict preference. Yeah. Of course, this view is potentially problematic in itself. And one of the reasons why it really points out to why, the, uh, why it's worth thinking about this, this issue, about population ethics and their impact on conclusion in particular. Among the set of people that don't exist are people who will exist in the future. Mm. And normally you would think that in thinking about what to do with our lives now, we should, to some extent, think about the future, perhaps in a discounted manner, but think about it nevertheless. And one of the moral reasons that are proposed uh, well, towards to that effect, is that people will exist in the future and they will inherit conditions mm. that we will provide. Now, the person affecting you would seemingly state that in thinking what to do you know, with, with our lives, we should completely disregard those people on the grounds that, you know, they exist in one of those scenarios that we envision, but not necessarily in the other. If we destroy Earth, these people will never come about. So comparing their welfare when they when they will exist mm. to the absence of their welfare when they don't exist is itself somewhat nonsensical. It alludes to the problem of uh, uh, defining non-existence in the first place. Of course, that really points to a, you know, um, a logical problem with defining existence itself. But mm. for the time being, I'm just trying to point out that this question is relevant because, and it's actually quite, um, I mean, we would say it's quite timely, right? I mean, we are engaging discussions about, the, for example, the environment right now. And some of the arguments that we are collectively considering is whether we should cater to the needs of the, well, to the needs of the environment in an economic sense in order to leave it in a better condition than they otherwise would for future generations. Should we care about future generations? Yeah, so I guess some people think it would just be a travesty if the billions of people who might exist if we really take care of the planet and so on don't in fact come, come into existence. And then some people say, well, look, those people don't exist, right? You just said they don't exist. So why should we care about them? Certainly, at least, we shouldn't care about them as much as people who actually happen to exist, right? Um, so I guess those are, the, those are the two views we're discussing now. And, I mean, and, well, I mean, what's beautiful about this example is that it really, uh, you know, grounds the discussion to something we can relate to mm. reasonably quickly. Because, indeed, it's not just that those people don't exist, it's that even if, well, even if they do, when they do, their quality of life will depend on what we're doing now. But think about it. Arguing on, arguing on the binary choice between them existing and them not existing, that is us destroying the earth upon our death, um, will eventually involve a comparison between A and, you know, something perhaps less than A+. Because we can literally exhaust our resources right now. Well, we can potentially exhaust our resources right now and enjoy a very extravagant quality, uh, very extravagant life, which we might associate with a high quality, mm. perhaps wrongly, but we might. Uh, 
Or we might be conservative with our resources and ensure that there will be life, mm. uh, there will be resources left for future life. So then we'll be comparing, you know, A, with a you know, population with a lower average quality of life in an intertemporal sense. Right? We will be looking at how this evolves through time. I think that one of the fallacies inherent there is to link, uh, in particular with respect to uh, in, um, intertemporal comparisons, it is to link uh, the exhaustion of material resources to one's quality of life. And, uh, I mean, that's perhaps heretic for a mainstream economist to say. <laughs> but, uh, however, do bear with me. Um, there is at least some evidence that um, a larger um, uh, degree of affluence in terms of material possessions does not, does not necessarily translate to a higher quality of life. Mm. Uh, the most immediate example I can now think of is um, uh, attention spans. Okay. My attention span has decreased massively over the past uh, um, over the past five years, uh, throughout which time my exposure to progressively more uh, clever or smart technological devices <laughs> has, has increased. Now, it might be correlating things that are not meant to be correlated, but as a matter of fact, this seems to be the case in the aggregate. We do have quite a bit of, I think, good quality evidence that indeed uh, interpersonal comparisons are important mm. in judging one's, uh, one's studying. I'm inclined to ask whether uh, there are issues of uh, some degree of endogeneity there, whether yeah. we're inclined to make that sort of uh, comparisons in the first place, uh, or why. But nevertheless, it, we might also like to argue that um, actually quality of life also depends to some extent uh, positively on the existence of all those other people. Mm -hmm. So in my previous example, if I could just, you know, remove some, pe some, some people from the population, the remaining ones will have a, ho a higher quality of life. Uh, have I seen this recently? Wasn't that the Avengers trope? Let's think about how that works. The argument is, of course, remove uh, some people from the population so that the rest will enjoy a reasonably higher qu quality of life. I guess we're like discounting the emotional trauma and whatever might happen from that kind of transition. But that's really the question if you i mean okay i'm happy to discount the transition yeah. the transition period so long as it's uh, reasonably brief for one you know yeah, with yeah. respect to one's lifetime but can you argue that the in the aftermath of in the aftermath yeah. of that transition that uh, the remain people are really better off the answer is i don't know we uh, well uh, science fiction aside we have some historical uh uh, circumstances where this has been uh, observed. I'm thinking of something along the lines of uh, the Black Death, for mm -hmm. example, where a substantial proportion of uh, farmers were wiped out by, uh, well, the Black Death. But the remaining farmers enjoyed a reasonable, I think, a reasonable increase in their welfare. Yeah, and higher wages and a lot of like institutional change as well. And that's really the question. To what extent does my welfare depend positively or negatively on the welfare of the people around me? Mm. Here on the welfare of the people that, uh, that are unemployed in the same occupation, on the welfare of the people that uh, uh, are within the, uh, 
the set of my family, on the, on the welfare of the people within my community, and so on and so forth. Now, if we examine this sort of um, these sort of interactions, we might uh, manage to account for the impact of conclusions, but usually the expense of something mm -hmm. equally uh, counterintuitive, as the lexicographic preference ordering would have you uh, reach. But in addition, the problem with those comparisons is that we essentially have to justify them on moral grounds. Mm. Why should someone's utility depend on someone's quality of life depend on others' quality of life? Yeah, I was, I was going to kind of um, start a, a new branch of that. Uh, all right. So one thing, uh, one line of argument that I find really interesting is the idea that um, when you're asking these uh, comparisons of A to A plus or A plus to B. Um, there is always kind of a strong sense of intuition, I think, for most people, and that kind of leads to the repugnant conclusion. But there is an argument to say that people aren't really even able in a, in a proper headspace to be able to make these kinds of comparisons. Um, when we're dealing with these huge numbers, you know, of billions versus quadrillions and stuff, these are just numbers that most people can't really comprehend. And then also on the other side, the idea of like um, what we're talking about, you know, like well-being units or quality of life units. What does it even really mean to be 100 times better off uh, or double as better off and stuff? And I think that's a, an interesting thing to really ask if we're really even in a mindset to be able to compare these things and then kind of implying if the completeness uh, requirement even holds. I think that this comment actually raises two very important points. The one has to do with the potential uh, incommensurability of uh, of our measures. Mm. To what extent we can compare welfare across different yeah. differently sized populations? Uh, what does it mean to take one's quality of life and add it to another's? And there is another uh, point to be made there uh, that has to do with our perspective on choice. I told you before that I'm biased. Right? Mm. I like formal frameworks. And uh, I also mentioned that this seems to be a taste to the best of my knowledge. Because, I mean, if you think about it, all I'm saying is that here's a consistent way to decide rather impassionately about things that matter. Now, why do they matter? Well, essentially, one, because they, um, they uh, determine people's, uh, in this case, existence and survival. Mm. And two, because the effect of you know, how people actually feel so I'm really trying to impartially think as if I'm, you know, neither existing nor feeling about how, you know, people fare when they exist and when, we, when they feel. So to the extent that I am existing, to the extent that I have some feelings, I have biases towards one view or another. But to the extent that I don't exist and I don't have feelings, I have biases because... I cannot really, well, I cannot really uh, either empathize or sympathize with those people. Mm. And therefore, I cannot really opine on what's better for them based on my own drawn analogies. I'm not sure that's the case. So these are two separate points. Well, one, I think it's perfectly valid to say that welfare is hardly comparable across these populations. But this might either lead us to a lexicographic ordering where I would postulate myself what's more important to to value, which one is arbitrary, and two leads to equally counterintuitive uh, conclusions, or it might lead us to another situation where we cannot even compare those uh, those outcomes, and not comparing is 
quite problematic because we have to make such decisions virtually all the time. Mm. And of course, uh, the other side of the argument, which I'm not going to touch on uh, in, in, at length because you know, it would be considerable length, is of course exactly that, that. This is a framework of rational choice. Its appeal is precisely that it's impassionate and therefore deemed impartial, but as a result, its relevance is questionable. Mm -hmm. Right, so to recap, <laughs> we have this rational choice framework and it turns out it gives us a a really nice way of laying out this repugnant conclusion, which says that if you start with uh, a world like A, with not so many people living very happy lives, by a series of fairly innocuous steps, we would seem always to have to prefer, rationally, uh, a world like Z, which is full of you know trillions, billions of people living lives of, like Parfit says, muzak and potatoes lives barely worth living, right? And it's a repugnant conclusion because most people think something's gone wrong. And what's gone wrong? Well, that's not clear. You suggested um, maybe this better than relation isn't transitive. Maybe it's not complete. Maybe our comparisons between these populations are something like a lexicographic. Um, maybe rational choice theory, like you said, is just too narrow, too limited to capture what's going on here. Maybe, like you suggested, Luca, we can't really understand what it's like to be a hundred times more or less happy than some other person. Maybe we can't empathize with people who don't yet exist, possible or future people, in other words. But there is another answer to the repugnant conclusion, which is just to say that it's right. It's not so repugnant. Um, and there are different ways of, of, of motivating that. But do you think it really is a, a repugnant conclusion? Do you think something's gone wrong? I don't think that something has, has gone wrong, per se. I don't think that something is... I mean, in a formal framework, things don't normally go wrong. <laughs> and the, uh, and the uh, theorems that we get are tautological, right? So it's not really a question of whether something has gone wrong. It's rather a question of whether this is relevant to what we have to decide in our normal lives as normal people. Um, and do I think it's repugnant? I'm not inclined to use the word repugnant. I'm inclined to use the word ugly. Right. And I do think it's not... Okay. If the end justified the means, I don't think it's the end that we would like to reach uh, when it comes to our... Um, to a satisfactory population ethics. Um, and, I mean, one of the reasons why I think it's repugnant or ugly, or repugnant if you want to call it that, is because it's rather, it seems to me a very extreme allocation of uh, uh, of, uh, well, resources, essentially. So, in our lexicographic discussion, we said that we can judge one thing as more important than another, which would bring us to one of two extremes. Well, in our con continuity discussion, with, you know, a continuous transition between A and Z, we decide that, you know, we value both things equally, well, to some extent, we can actually apply weights to them and say we value this much by some 
to some degree and we value this much to another degree and it will still end up with a very extreme outcome. And I don't think that such extreme outcomes are able to account for the complexity of, uh, of human experience because that's what you essentially want to draw it back mm. to. It's not as much us making uh, reasonably nefarious choices among imaginary populations. It's that when it, we come to apply those choices, if we have a reasonably, de reasonably developed framework for population ethics, these choices should be, um, uh, should be deemed as good in an empirical sense respect to how people actually get to experience life given them. I think a lot about like how repugnant the repugnant conclusion is as well, depends on like how you frame it. I think it's really hard. I mean, we're talking about, you know, in like a very formal and abstract setting to kind of get rid of these biases, but I don't think you ever really can. I think it makes a huge difference about how you pose the comparison between A to Z. If we're already living in a society A, right? And we're saying, okay, the current status is us with a hundred utility. And now the question is, would you want uh, there to be another billion, trillion people, um, all of which will live lives barely worth living and all the lives of the people around you will be barely worth living as well? Then I think most people would safely say they weakly or even strictly prefer society A to society Z. But if you frame it the opposite way and, you know, you're in society Z and you say, okay, um, would you prefer society A where 99% of people will just disappear and you might be one of those people as well, um, you know, for the bare hope that a few people will get to live a really luxurious life. I think a lot of people would then say, oh, maybe I actually weakly prefer society Z to society A. And I think especially um, when you kind of apply that symmetry between space and time as you did before about saying, okay, would you be willing to make these huge sacrifices in order to uh, allow for the survival of humanity and you pose and you propose society Z in that kind of way, you know, for the continuity of humanity, are you willing to go from a hundred to one? Then I think a lot of people would say, maybe it's not that repugnant, but I think that framing of the initial comparison, I think matters a lot. And I think is the really a hard challenge about treating this in such a formal abstract or mathematical way is I think it's very hard for people to do um, when fundamentally I think there's still a lot of intuition and intuitive feeling about what feels right and what feels wrong. In a certain sense we should also take into account that the problem becomes more complex when thinking about the impartiality uh, mm -hmm. condition. It's not us who would make a choice in, the, in, 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 a, in a good framework for population ethics is that anyone who assumed our position mm. would be able to make a, you know, a, a choice in a sort of consistent manner. So there are some people in the, the temporal context that never get to make a choice. The people who will or will not exist based on our actions. Mm. And, uh, you know, when they are not being asked, in a certain sense, the choice-making process does not consider their views at all. Uh, which is impossible, of course. But, you know, Conceptually, we, we might want to inquire whether that's something that we like mm. about it. When you referred to um, uh, the desire of people in the population Z mm. to not, well, to have the option to 99% of you won't exist, but the rest will be better off. I'm wondering whether this has actually uh, materialized in previous cutoffs. First comment there was that suppose you have two populations, A and A, but now A involves. A, plus a population with a gazillion of agents with lives barely worth living. Mm. 
Mm. So an extremely unequal distribution, but we are exactly as well off as before. Do we like that? There's a thought as well that some people try to make clearer that there is just something bad in itself about inequality. All other things being equal, we, we would prefer a world with a more even distribution of, of welfare or resources because it's fairer or, you know, there's something good about equality. So maybe you prefer A to A plus in that case. But, 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 but that's exactly the thing. I mean, if I use your previous argument, you preferred right. A plus with 50 quality of life. Mm -hmm. Would you still prefer, prefer A plus if it was 0 0.05 quality of yeah. life? And the other thing, well, have we actually witnessed cases where people say, I'd rather, uh, I would rather you know, take the gamble of not, not existing in order to enjoy a better quality of life? I don't know, have we ever witnessed uh, uprisings? In an uprising, there's a very real chance that I would get killed. Mm. So if I decide to participate in one, I must, you know, if I'm thinking about it and I'm not acting impulsively, uh, then I must have waited, you know, the potential consequences and decided that, well, actually, I'll take the risk. But to be clear, when we're deciding between these different populations, we're not answering the question, which world would I prefer to live in? We're answering the question, which world is best, right? For those people who are in that world. Um, so maybe one of the problems that goes on is is that we replace, we switch out one of those questions for the other one yeah. uh, without realising it. Now, when Parfit talks about the repugnant conclusion, he thinks it really is repugnant. And he says that we need uh, a theory that can avoid the repugnant conclusion. He calls it theory X, right? The, the kind of... The perfect, the, the perfect um, uh, framework for population ethics, right? I'm interested to know, do you think there's some hope that um, we reach that point, we figure out that what's going wrong, or do you think that's a false, a false hope? Uh, I'm glad you guys are asking the hard questions. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I can uh, opine, well, opine. As a matter of fact, I know that there are certain possibility theorems that show that no, such a theory isn't possible mm -hmm. given a certain, uh, well, certain types of framework. However, again, impossibility theorems are theorems st stated within formal frameworks. And as a result, they also tend to give rather uh, a series of tautologies rather than um, results that we can deem as relevant. So you can refute the relevance. I mean, you cannot refute the validity of those possibility theorems, not easily at least, but you can refute the relevance of them on the grounds that they are constructing artificial frameworks which bear no resemblance to actual choices and actual comparisons that we make. Mm -hmm. So sure, if I was a rational decision maker and I have a series of uh, uh, um, complete and transitive uh, well, I have a complete and transitive ordering for the choices that I can make in this situation, then it might be it might be impossible, given different alternatives, to reach a theory that will eliminate all possible um, conclusions that would seem, you know, in this in this sense, repulsive. But in order to show that this is the case, that this is formally the case, that we need certain, uh, we need further structure in the framework. And this further structure is not unique and is not necessarily relevant. Mm -hmm. 
to me when I when I make that choice. So um, I guess there is a wider point there. Is a satisfactory theory of population ethics possible? And to that point, I don't think we can get one, but I think we can still get closer to one. Or, okay, let's rephrase this. Do I think that this, well? Do I think that the possibility of one exists? Perhaps. Do Do I think that the possibility of us getting to know it exists? No. Right. So I'm playing Socrates here, uh, in a way. But uh, yeah, worse than that actually. But this combination, the fact that, well. I believe there is one there. I believe we, we cannot reach it, but perhaps get closer to it. Is self-serving as well because it gives me a job, and it gives everyone else something to do that's working on this on, the, on this sort of thing. Coincidentally, it might result in a progressively better quality of population ethics. And to that extent, I think that pursuit is worthwhile. Great. So we started by discussing this rational choice framework. Um, as a way of talking about the Republican conclusion and about population ethics more generally. And then we saw all these problems that come out of this very formal treatment. And now it sounds like it's going to be very difficult to rescue ourselves from those problems as long as we stay in this mindset of, of treating them so formally. And it sounds like, well, look, the real moral decisions that we make um, every day, they are so much more messy and more complicated than we can admit in these frameworks. So maybe the mistake we made was at the very start, the very start of this discussion in adopting that rational framework in the first place, right? That is true. And, uh, you know, I recognize my bias in adopting it. <laughs> but at the same time, I would find it hard to know how to go about it another way. So I'm very happy if you argue that, you know, uh, choices, uh, rational choice, the rational choice framework is not adequate for this analysis. Mm. But in that case, I would expect of you to propose a different one, <laughs> which I haven't actually heard yeah. being proposed yet. Cool. I think we've we've covered a lot of ground there. And I think we're approaching the hour. It might be an hour later than we initially <laughs> planned. But um, I guess the, the last question we have to close off every interview is what are three books, papers, or any other kind of form of, of media that inspired you or you think listeners would find really useful? Uh, so uh, I'm looking there at the back now. Uh, here's what I would suggest. Um, Perfits, Reasons and Persons is uh, remarkably resourceful. Uh, in that sense. Um, so this is definitely one of them. Um, the other, a second one might be I, one that proposes actually a framework for rational choice. So pick, let's, let's say, um, formal logic by Richard Jeffrey. And the last one is actually uh, work of very recent work of uh, Christian List, 
Christian is a professor at the LSE, and they uh, recently authored a book arguing why free will is real. Now, this is the the outline in this in this set, <laughs> but I think that the argument is very. Uh, uh, very appealing in a sense. All right. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much. No, thank, you. thank you. That was Vasilis Kotsidis on rational choice theory and the repugnant conclusion. If you want to learn more about Vas's research, you can read the write-up that accompanies this episode at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Vasilis. The link is also in the show notes. There you will find the books Vas mentioned, some pictures which make the argument a bit clearer, as well as the formal representations of RCT and some further ideas about the repugnant conclusion not featured in the podcast. Also, if you have a moment, we would be grateful if you could leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. We're just starting out and any feedback helps us improve and others find the show. If you'd like to support the show more directly, you can also leave a tip by following the link in the show notes. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>